say that I'm not technologically, or I'll phrase it this way, I went to an Ivy League school, I majored in computer science, and what that means is that I'm much better at yelling at my computer than you are. I do not know how to get the PowerPoint here and my notes here. So we're just going to go with my notes here and the PowerPoint in both places. Hopefully that will work. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Roy Stiff. Uh, we've been here a while. This is my lovely wife, Gosha. We have the next two sessions. Gosha will be helping me and leading the next time. Well, she said she would. I don't <laughs> <coughs> This is a series on the virtues. Uh, and yet the, the title of this time is Suffering. Uh, and if we're starting off with virtues, uh, why are we, why is the first topic suffering? And I think this verse, as Gosha and I talked about this, Gosha suggested this verse, Romans 5, 3, the beginning, where Paul writes, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that the tribulation, that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. And this verse here just says quite clearly that there is a link between suffering or trials, difficulties, tribulation, and the virtues. What is virtue? What are the virtues except for those characteristics expressed through our character, through our personality? In other words, proven character. And I think you'll find, I have no idea what other people are going to say, but I think you'll find that when we talk about virtues and we talk about vices, Part of the thing that's going to be part of that, those different subjects is going to be suffering or difficulties. And these virtues are not expressed in a vacuum, but they're expressed in life. The good times, but also the bad times. I'd like to start off with a story. I was told this mic is forgiving, which is good. I want to roam back and forth. I'd like to start off with a story. I think most of you know that my wife was born and raised in communist Poland and that I went to Poland and lived there as an undercover missionary for 14 years. We got married, our kids were born there. Uh, and when the wall began to fall, out of the blue, God called us to Moscow, to what was still then the Soviet Union. And we moved right before the Soviet Union fell. We assumed it would last another 10 years at least and it fell within a few months. And because of that unexpected freedom, we were, in the very beginning, we were able with others to um, organize a conference for different new leaders who were beginning to come out of the ministry. And one of our coworkers knew a pastor who had been a pastor in the Soviet Union for, well, since the 60s. And he had been arrested. He was arrested in 1967. He was arrested for sharing the gospel, and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison and to the camps. Now, uh, we had him share about, uh, we felt that these Christians needed to know what their heritage was, and we had him share, and he wouldn't go into much detail about his suffering. He did say, though, that many of his pastor friends died simply from the ill treatment and the abuse. Now, he was released, he was arrested in 67, he was released in 79, and this is what makes him a hero. He went back to preaching the gospel. Now, in my youth, I think maybe in my zeal or idealism, or actually a better word would be in my naivety, I would preach the gospel, hopefully, regardless of the consequences. 
But after 12 years of Soviet camps and watching those around me die and me probably barely making it myself, when I got out, you would find the most silent Christian you could possibly find. There is no way I would go back and put myself in that kind of situation. But he went back to preaching the gospel, and within a year he was arrested, and he was sentenced to another 12 years. He served, I think, about eight of those before he was released when Gorbachev came to power in an amnesty. Now that is an example of extreme suffering and suffering for the gospel. And what does that have to do with us this morning? I put to you, and I hope you'll be convinced at the end of this time, that although there's a difference in intensity, and trust me, whatever my wife and I have gone through, it doesn't compare to what this man and his family went through. But even though there's a difference in intensity to what maybe you've experienced in difficulties, or what we've experienced in difficulties, and what some other people have had to ex uh, experience for the sake of the gospel, there's a difference in intensity, but I believe that they are the same in kind. We're going to be talking about the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Uh, we have a son-in-law, and I say this with just the greatest respect. He is a true egghead. He is uh, down at University of Chicago getting his uh, doctorate in historical theology. And he defined the problem of evil so succinctly that I've used it whenever I've talked. His name is Robert Porwell, if you want to write his name down. The problem of evil is this, that God is all-powerful. That's obvious. God called out of nothing, and we can't even imagine nothing because we imagine empty space, but that's something. God, out of completely nothing, brings into being all the worlds and all the powers and all the people that are on this planet. So God is all-powerful. God is good. There simply is no shadow in God. There's no even shifting of shadow. There is nothing about God that is not good, kind, and benevolent. And yet our experience on this world says that evil or suffering exists. And this is the problem. Choose two. That's how, you, that's how most people deal with this. I've, I've sat in a lecture where this very learned man, a believer in God, not a Christian, but a rabbi, a believer in God, believer in the Old Testament, and he was quite convinced that God is good. Excuse me, you can't see what I'm pointing to. God is good. Where are we? God is good. Evil, yeah, I see it. Evil, yeah, talking about suffering, yes, let's, uh, I want to give a personal example here. Uh, God is good. His evil and suffering that existed was because his two sons had died, both of disease. And as a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in the Old Testament, he couldn't reconcile. How is it possible that God is good, God is powerful, and evil suffering exists? And so he simply decided that God wasn't all-powerful. Now, this just wasn't a lecture that we heard. When Gosha got cancer, we had a fellow missionary come to us and said, stop trying to figure out why. God isn't in charge of the little things. God's in charge of the big things, but he's God. But he's not in charge of the little things. Life is terrible. Actually, she used a much worse word that I'm not going to use this Sunday morning. But uh, life is terrible. Bad things happen. And God's not in charge. It's all random. And this was a fellow missionary who, if I could be so bold, should have known better. You can go to the middle of the 20th century and, and take out number three, evil suffering exists. Christian science. I'm from New England. 
I was born in the middle of the 20th century. Christian science was a real issue. And uh, Mary Baker Eddy said quite clearly her teaching was that sickness is an illusion. And there have been other people through history who claim that evil and suffering don't really exist. But the truth of the matter is that most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we probably have never consciously thought about it, but if we were honest with ourselves when difficulties happen, and I'm not talking here about the difficulties that you go too fast and you get a speeding ticket. I'd like to give God praise that uh, I was going too fast trying to make it on time this morning and drove right by a parked police car who was looking for speeders and God in his mercy didn't allow me to suffer. <laughs> but uh, when you get that speeding ticket, you know why you got it. You went 55 miles per hour in a 40 mile per hour zone. I mean, or in a more serious thing, if you get lung cancer and you have smoked two packs a day for a couple of decades, it is a tragedy, it is real suffering, but you don't have to ask why. We're talking about the kind of suffering that happens in our lives, that happens in this congregation. Why should Brett Forster die? Good man, serving the Lord. And he leaves behind a wife and two teenage children. And I could, I mean, we could go on with the examples. We have people dealing with cancer, uh, my wife included. And sometimes it's expressed this way. Uh, Gosha was going through treatment. She was in, headed towards remission, basically there, or at least almost there. She was due for a scan. After so many years, my knees had finally given out way too much basketball in my life. And all of a sudden, my knees just gave out, both of them, and I couldn't, could barely walk, could not drive, and I could not take care of my wife. I'm scheduled on February 8th of this year for surgery to get knee replacement because Gosh is doing so well. That was a Tuesday, and on the Thursday before that, five days before that, Gosha goes for a scan and they come back and say the cancer's back with reinforcements. And my response was, my prayer was really very succinct. It was, really? <laughs> I mean, really? This couldn't have waited her coming out of remission for three months, just, you know, just give me three months, get the operations done, I'll be somewhat back on my feet. I can take care of her and we can deal with life. But this is now going to happen at the same time when she needs chemo as soon as possible. And what we're basically doing, most of us subconsciously or consciously, we're challenging the second one, that God is good. Most of us have no trouble believing when we pray that God is powerful and that he can do it. We are not like the man when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there's this crowd and the man says to Jesus, describes his son, he says, if you can help us. We don't say that, we know he can help us, but we really have doubts about will he because we doubt his goodness. And I say we, I'm there. So this is the problem of evil, which two do we choose? I'm hoping to show by the end of this lecture that there's another alternative of why we don't have to choose two. We're going to look at the book of Job. We're going to look at uh, two passages. Probably most of you have heard it. The real fear in uh, speaking to this particular crowd is I wonder how many people have taught on the book of Job at Wheaton. Uh, but we're going to look at Job and we're going to ask some hard questions. You should know that this talk is the first in a series of talks that I call for mature Christians only. We're gonna look at some hard truths. And I need to know that everyone here is firmly grounded in the truth that God is love 
and that his love is perfect and that his love is not ideal out there but that his love touches you on a daily basis and that there is nothing absolutely nothing that can separate you from God's love I need you to be convinced in the word of God that his promises on prayer and all of Jesus promises on prayer are true in spite of sometimes things not happening as we pray I need to ground you and make sure you understand that regardless of what we talk about today especially in this terrible case of suffering that God is good and he honors his word and answers prayer so let's take a look at the person of Job now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them and the Lord said to Satan from where do you come and Satan answered the Lord and said from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Two things to notice here is that when we're talking about what kind of person was Job, is that it's not the author of the book, and we don't know who authored it. We do believe, for those of you who are interested, we believe that Job probably lived around the time of, time of Abraham. If you're interested, I can tell you later why we think that. Uh, but was not obviously Jewish, was not a son of Abraham. He's just a godly man in that part of the world. And it is God himself who, who calls Job blameless, describes Job as upright because he fears God and he turns away from evil. Does not mean he was sinless, but it means when he sinned, he offered the appropriate sacrifices for sin, and that is explained earlier. Now, the second thing I want you to notice in this passage is it, it is God who says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I don't know about you, but when every time I read that, and I'm talking about reading it dozens upon dozens of times over the several decades, my heart cries out why do you bring him up in the conversation just don't talk about him and nothing happens <laughs> i mean seriously my heart cries out i mean because i realize that there will be theologians who said this man didn't exist this is a teaching exercise i believe very strongly because of the word of god that this man did exist and that this conversation actually took place in heaven that job knew nothing about is that I don't understand, or at least I didn't understand for decades, of why would God bring Job up in the conversation? If he's blameless, why are you going to punish him? If he's living for you, just leave him alone, and he'll continue to serve you. What's the point? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. It goes on. So Satan, or then Satan, answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. I am sure many of you have heard talks or lectures on this passage, but I still want us to discuss it. What's the accusation here? And I need a break from talking a little bit, so let's hear from the audience. 
What's the accusation here, Peter? Okay, he believes readily, sees how it is. Anybody else like to expand on that? It's, right. It's just self-interest. And that is, first of all, correct, absolutely true. And second, the traditional interpretation. Let's ask a different question. Who or what is under attack here, under accusation? Job's faith? Yes, no? Job? Who or what is under accusation? Thank you. Who's got the right? Who said that? <laughs> the, the key to unlocking this passage is that it is not Job who is under attack here. And it is not Job who is being accused. Since the time of Jerome, he lived about the turn from the end of the, uh, make sure I get my dates right, end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, and even before him, the church has regarded this passage from Isaiah of referring not only to the king of Babylon, but referring to the power behind the throne. There's a lot of variations of explanations, but in general, there is a long-standing tradition that this prophecy, which is definitely against the king of Babylon, is actually talking about Satan, the spiritual power behind the throne. It's a familiar passage. I'll still read it. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mounts of assembly in the recesses of the north that is sitting on a throne with authority and power. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Now, we have to be honest. There is not much we know about the creation of the angelic world and the spiritual world. What we do know is that that eternal world is permanent and more real than this world here, and that's a problem for us. I mentioned uh, our time in Russia. Our very first time in Russia was, um, we went there in 1991, and when we organized our very first conference from students on the first day, all of a sudden someone came to the room, uh, to those of us who were leading the conference, and said, we got a problem. We have a girl who's, who's demon-possessed, and she can't get out of bed. The demon is not letting her get up. And needed to go down there, rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus, and free her so that she could get up and take part in this Bible conference. That's mild. We also had a situation where one of our workers was, uh, uh, he and his wife, were there with their kids and their youngest, uh, the, the mother was out with the youngest in a stroller. And for reasons we have no idea, she hadn't said anything to this woman and uh, had not bothered her in any way. But this gypsy woman cursed, not the woman, but cursed the girl in the stroller. I believe that this gypsy woman involved in demonic and satanic activity could see the light of Christ in her. And he cursed this little girl and said, she will not live for a year. She will die before the year is out. And our staff women responded in the most, I mean, when she understood what was being, she said, is that all? And rebuked the woman and this curse in the name of Jesus. That little girl was diagnosed about six months later with a brain tumor. And we prayed and we rebuked Satan 
and she died within a year. There's an activity going on even as we speak that we're not aware of. In places like Russia or other places where it's overt, it's easier to see and if anything, easier to deal with, although we didn't know what we were doing back then. And I wish we had done more warfare pra uh, prayers and fasting for this little girl. It's actually harder here because it is so subtle and yet just as strong. There is a spiritual battle going on as we speak that is more real than this or this or this floor because that's part of the eternal world and taking place before God's throne as we saw in the book of Job. When Satan rebelled against God, he did two things. He obviously declared his independence, but just the very act of rebellion, whether it was this or in some other format, the very act of rebellion is an accusation against God that says, you are not worthy to be God. You are not worthy of obedience. I will be like God. And that is true for any act of rebellion against God, including our own. It is an accusation saying, God, you are not worthy to be God. Now, the question I ask at this point is, we know from Scripture Satan has been judged. We know from Scripture that his sentence is sure. He'll, he'll be cast into the lake of fire at the end. I won't get into all the different possibilities of how the end times might look, but one thing is very sure, he's cast into the lake of fire. Why on earth did God not simply carry out that judgment right then and there? And we won't have all this suffering. And Eve is never tempted, mankind is never tempted. Scripture doesn't answer that question, but I think logic does. I think when a charge like this is made against the person in power, if it is squashed immediately, that charge goes unanswered. And that question is simply left hanging. Is God worthy of, of obedience? There is Satan who has said no. He apparently, if we understand revelations correctly, and I believe we do, he convinces a third of the angelic beings to follow him in this rebellion. And there is this charge against the Lord God himself, the most holy one, the all-powerful one, the creator, saying, you are not worthy to be God. And God says, we will let this charge be carried out to its conclusion, and this charge against me will be decided in this new race of beings that I will create, called mankind. Now, do you understand? Scripture is not very clear what happens exactly when, but Scripture is clear that the angels are created before us, and that Satan has already fallen when he tempts Eve. We have been created for one purpose, and that is to glorify God. I'll get that. But I want you to see this in this passage that we read in Job. Why does First God asks Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been roaming around the earth. He is roaming around the earth, observing, as well as tempting, mankind, because it is mankind who's going to decide whether his accusation, his rebellion against God, has any merit to it. And this is why, and I can't think of any other reason why, God brings up Job. When God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God is saying, you say I'm not worthy of obedience. 
My servant Job here, by his very life, says I'm worthy of obedience, worthy of praise, worthy of trust, and worthy to be God. And Satan says, this isn't what you think it is. This is not in any way proving anything because he's only doing all this because you've blessed him so much. And then we know the story. Take away your protection, loses family, loses possessions, eventually even loses health. If this is true, and I am 100% convinced that it is true, this needs to change how we live. The short, I hope it's here. Oh, one other thing just to point out that this is the reason for our creation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? Okay. G.K. Chesterton in The Man Who Is Thursday has a great picture of what that looks like and why we're qualified to judge the world and judge others. But then in the next verse, Paul says, don't you know that we'll judge angels? And I read that and I go, how am I going to judge an angel? I don't know who they are. I don't understand them. I don't know what uh, demands God has made on their lives. How can I judge angels? And I believe that this answers that question. Our obedience is what will judge the angels. This demands of us, if it's true, and it is, what I've termed, and others have used this phrase, uh, I'm, I did come up with this on my own, not that it's important, thinking how brilliant I was, only to find several other people have also <laughs> used this phrase. But a, this demands of us a Copernican revolution of the soul. Now, I hope everyone knows here, this is extremely important for our family, that Copernicus was a Polish priest. <laughs> Thank you. He was a Polish priest who was also an astronomer and is credited with being the first one who was saying, no, the sun does not revolve in the solar system around the earth, but actually the sun is in the center and the earth revolves around the sun. Now, when the problem with that is part of, the, part of the historical background of why Copernicus and later Galileo can come to these conclusions is that there's been an enlightenment and science is beginning to come to the fore. And the problem with the enlightenment is that not only are they taking in their understanding of the solar system, the earth, out of the middle of the solar system and putting the sun there, but in the, our social solar system, they're taking God, who during the Middle Ages was in the center of society, with man revolving around him, and they're putting mankind, and God revolves around man. And that's, this results eventually in things like humanism and other things. Our generation, speaking as an older person, has taken that one step further, is that we've taken mankind out of the center of our solar system and put ourself. If you look at our culture, the whole world is to revolve around me. Correct? I need to do what I need to do, and no one has a right to prevent me from doing what I feel I need to do. That is the defining value of our culture. And it's the, the problem is that the church of every country brings in the baggage of that culture so that in Western society, there is much individualism instead of community where the New Testament is on community, and there's much of what is in it for me and most of the talks on suffering have to do with how is God going to use this in my life? 
Well, frankly, those talks are great because they're all true. We're going to be conformed to the image of God. We're going to be pruned. We're going to experience God in ways we've never had before. And the list goes on and on. And all those things are true. But we need to understand that at times we need to put that all aside and say, what is God's purpose in this? And what is he accomplishing for himself and for his kingdom? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it comes out of a meeting, I believe in the 17th century, between the Scottish Church and the Anglican Church to try to bring these two churches closer together. And of course, there's many, many documents, but they had a shorter catechism. And uh, the most uh, commonly used quote is this one, is asking the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is definitely, definitely true. But for years, I would read this and go, we should. Like, like the uh, crowds in heaven, like the people before the throne of God who praise him, fall down and worship before him, like the angels who raise their hands and uh, they sing the glory of God. That is our chief end. But I now believe that that's only part of it. And that one of the key ways we glorify God is in the difficult times we choose to trust him. When we've lost a child, when we're having difficulties with a child, when we're in a difficult relationship, either with a spouse or another family member or a parent or a child or someone at work, and we choose to respond in a godly way and thank God for this difficulty. More than anything else, this glorify God because it answers the accusation of Satan against God. And by our very lives, we say, you are God, you are worthy to be God, and you are worthy of our obedience. And we put the lie to Satan's accusation. This isn't just theory. For me, I've, I could mention many, many times where this has really changed my action. Uh, you know, I work for a Christian organization. And I know you probably all think that the Christians in the organization are all Christians, so therefore it's all sweetness and light, and we never disagree with each other. And, and no one's trying to advance their career, and no one does things against you and stabs you in the back. And all those things certainly happen to other people. Uh, well, no, that's not entirely true. Uh, our difficulty in Russia was that my leadership was two times, was over a 1,000 uh, kilometers away, so uh, up about 700 miles away, uh, two time zones away, hardly ever contacted us. And when they would come in, and I was directing Campus Crusades ministry in Russia for many years, and when they would come in, there was just miscommunication, there was lack of trust, there was lack of believing the best. And I could make a, from a human standpoint, I could make a, a, a pretty strong case of being treated like dirt. Again, I'd like to use stronger language, but this is, you know, <laughs> Sunday morning. Um, you know, from a human standpoint. And there is one thing that happened. I won't get into it. You know, I can share later. You know, from a human standpoint, I blew up at our leader. I mean, I yelled at him and stormed out of the room, stormed out of the office, started walking up the road the, in Moscow saying, I am done. I'm not doing this anymore. And it's the Lord himself just stopped me right there and said, so who's going to get the victory here? You're going to give Satan the victory? 
you're going to glorify him by agreeing he's right, or you're going to do what my word says, which is go and submit to your leadership, regardless if your leadership is right, wrong, reasonable, or unreasonable, or even worse, seems to have it out for you. What are you going to do? Are you going to glorify me by, in the difficult times, obey me and show that I am worthy of obedience? I turned around, marched back into the office, humbled myself, and said I was wrong, even though they were wrong, but we won't get into that. <laughs> I never got an apology, never got any admission. Said I was wrong, shouldn't have blown up. Uh, there's an unfortunate end to that story about that sin of mine of blowing up against my leadership led to some very serious consequences for the ministry. And it was my sin that caused it, regardless of how I've been treated. But for this morning, the chief, my chief end in that moment was to glorify God by giving him obedience in a difficult situation. This is true in dealing with our spouses, returning good for evil. This is true in having enduring and having patience in difficult situations. This is true throughout our whole life. In Acts 5, 40 through 42, and I'm going to now tie it back into the pastor who uh, experienced such difficulty. This is now the second time that the apostles have been arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're about, they're thinking of killing him, and Gamaliel says, uh, don't do this, you just make the movement stronger. And so in the Sanhedrin, it says that they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. That means beating with a whip. Thank you. They flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And I underline this thing here about that they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That concept is what connects your difficulty, your suffering, whatever it is, to the pastor or any other suffering. You know, I would not want to have Joni's, Johnny's, I'm mispronouncing her name, uh, the woman who's been confined to a wheelchair, the Christian, since she was 17 years old. I would not want to have that calling upon my life. She actually has a video about this subject. The way she phrased it is that when things go bad and you suffer and you choose to glorify God, you're making God famous. And she doesn't explain this, but I believe you're making God famous among the angels and in the world, that he is worthy of obedience regardless of what happens to us. That is God's purpose among many others. It does refine us. It does conform us to the image of Christ. But this is what connects us to people like the pastor. If you're in a difficult situation and you choose to endure by his strength, you choose to give thanks, or like Job, Job blessed God. That's what it says at the end of verse 1, in spite of the difficulties and the pain. This is what connects you to that pastor. Not everyone, praise the Lord, is called to live to be in Soviet camps for 12 years and experience such terrible, terrible sufferings. But we are called, whatever the, the problem is, to declare his glory, declare his deity, to declare his worthiness by being obedient. And that we should rejoice to consider that he considers us worthy to suffer shame for the sake of his good name and his holiness. 
This should be a motivation in her life. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And there's a lot of things taught, you know, this idea of taking up your cross and you have this cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. First, it's denying ourselves, turning away from ourselves. And second is taking up his cross. Now, the cross for Jesus meant two things, and it means two things for us. First, it represents the will of God. I am not called to be crucified on Calvary outside of Jerusalem. I have been called to be with my wife and watch her go through suffering. And she has been called, even though she doesn't want this calling, and neither do I, to suffer through all the cancers we've suffered through and the pain that comes with it. It talks about taking up your cross is whatever God has called you to, to gladly pick that up and shoulder it and then follow me. The other thing about the cross is that it's a symbol of death. Now it says right in the beginning, deny himself, but taking up his cross actually means dying to self our desires, the things that are important to us, and understanding that God will give back to us those that, we, uh, those that he wants us to have. There's an interesting thing in the Greek here in this passage is that denying himself and taking up his cross is in the aorist tense. It's a one-time event, a point in time that it's happened. But the follow me is in the present. It's a continuous. It's something that we go through, and it's a decision we make in our lives, every day of our lives, and frankly, every moment of our lives, to deny ourselves and take up his cross. And when we do that, we give God great glory. Now, in closing, I'd like to share this. And this might be hard. I've shared this several times, and it, all I've ever talked about is the sufferings that we have are part of the sufferings of Christ that God has called us to, that we might declare his glory, whatever it might be, however small or however how large and intense. But it seems to me that there exists at least the possibility that our ability to live our lives peacefully in a middle-class middle class neighborhood outside of Chicago as Christians is under attack and is going to be threatened. And it's because of the cultural change that has taken place within the last two years. And what I've said about suffering will be about suffering for the name of Christ directly, rather than this uh, defending God's worthiness to be obeyed. Paul writes, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It is my hope in sharing this this morning that we can begin to lay a foundation, a foundation of absolute trust in the Lord and willingness to follow him in spite of everything. At the end of my junior year in college, I was invited to go to a conference. I had no idea what I was going to. I have to be very honest. I went because I had never been west of the Mississippi. I'm from the east. And... Uh, this was going to be held in Dallas, Texas, and someone else was driving and paying for the gas. I mean, how could you say no? So I went to this conference. turned out to be held in the Cotton Bowl, and there were 80,000 college students from all over the country there. And uh, there was this Billy Graham was there who I was very interested in hearing, and then there was this guy named Bill Bright there who I couldn't even understand why he spoke because he was short. 
He was about as wide as he was tall, and he spoke in the most monotone voice I've ever heard. Uh, he's also the head of campus, he was the head of Campus Crusade, the organization we've worked for for all these years. Um, on the third or fourth night, both Billy Graham and Bill Bright stood together and challenged us to be willing to do anything, say anything, and go anywhere and follow Jesus. And just about 80,000 students rose en masse make, uh, accepting that challenge. I sat. I didn't stand, at least not at first, because I simply wasn't going to get caught up in mass hysteria. Uh, tends to be my personality. If the crowd's going this way, well, then I need to go that way. Um, but I sat there and wrestled with the Lord. Is this something you want me to do? Is this something I should do? Is this something I'm even willing to do? What I didn't know is I was asking the very question we've been talking about. Is God worthy of obedience? Now, I have no idea. I had no idea at that time what God was going to call me to. I was going to go back to my university and try to complete my studies. But uh, I eventually stood and made that commitment. But I, as I look back on that time, I think that commitment was, a, that challenge was a little short because it's not only being willing to do whatever he wants, say whatever he wants, but it's being willing to suffer if that's what he chose, if that's what he chooses for his honor and glory. And that the discipleship call that Jesus is putting on us is to be willing to be obedient and to be willing to suffer for his honor and glory. I'd like to end by just going back to this, this slide. This is a pretty serious topic, and it's uh, one that I hope you'll think about and will grab you. But there's really only one way that I see, two ways, to get to this point that we're willing to go anywhere, do anything, say anything, and suffer anything for Christ and his kingdom. And that is this second thing right here. Enjoy him forever. It's not done in a vacuum. It's not done with a harsh God sitting on his throne wondering why you're not doing more. It's done with a God of joy and a God of love, a God of, who delights in us. And it takes a journey to learn how to enjoy him. And then what Matt has said twice, and uh, I'll be saying, and Gosha as well next time, of learning how to depend upon him so that these things can be true in our lives. But this Westminster uh, uh, Confession, the Shorter Catechism, is, it's not scripture, but it is definitely true. Our calling is to glorify him through our obedience in the difficult times and to enjoy him who is joy himself, who is beauty itself, who is, I believe, is music himself and has more music and more beautiful music than we can possibly understand, to learn to walk with him and enjoy him forever, and then in the difficult times, as well as the good times, to give him obedience. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the lesson of Job that there is a spiritual battle. These conversations in heaven are taking place about us as you bring different of us in front of Satan saying, have you considered uh, this person or that person? And that you delight in us because we've chosen to follow you. And we've chosen through obedience, maybe imperfect obedience, but you've chosen us to be obedient and therefore glorify you and declare your deity and your worthiness. Thank you for being with us this morning. And I pray you be with us 
the rest of this morning and the rest of this series as we learn about bringing your character and your characteristic, your virtues, into our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.